Our Father in heaven, O Lord, we have been blessed at this camp meeting. I know I've been blessed as we have reflected on you and experienced this wonderful time of fellowship, community, and time in your word. And Lord, this morning we pray um, for your Holy Spirit um, to uh, be in me, be with us, uh, Lord, We know that you have chosen the weak things and the foolish things of this world so that no flesh can glory in your presence. And um, Lord, you know that uh, my heart's desire is that this truth about the sanctuary would be made clear and that it would be applied to every heart today, that you would transform us in spirit and in truth. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this morning by sharing a few quotations from the book Great Controversy, uh, page 423, and this quotation was introduced to me in a new way uh, when I was taking my studies when it outlines a system of truth. Here it is, Great Controversy, page 423. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the Great Advent Movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Notice in this quotation that Ellen White states that it opened to view a complete system of truth. So what the sanctuary does is it provides a framework for understanding the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth, died on the cross, was baptized, And the courtyard represents his ministry here on earth, and then we believe that at his resurrection, he went into heaven, into the holy place, to minister as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And then from 1844 to this present day, he's ministering in the most holy place on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, I want to read another quotation here from 489 of Great Controversy. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in man's behalf or in behalf of men. And so when you think about what she's saying here, the the sanctuary provides a map, as it were, a context for understanding the work and ministry of Jesus. As we stated, his life on earth, the courtyard, and then in heaven, if you look at the model of the sanctuary I have on the screen, he fulfills the holy place ministry, and then he goes into the most holy place ministry. So it provides a context for the movement of Jesus in the plan of salvation and also our own personal individual journey in the plan of salvation. One other quote I want to share with you that was revolutionary to me. This is from Great Controversy, page 409. The Scripture, which above all others had been both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith, was the declaration 
unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. We've heard of the pillars of the Adventist faith, sanctuary, state of the dead, second coming, spirit of prophecy. But here she states something very unique and profound. She states that the sanctuary, specifically 1844 in the 2300 day prophecy, is the central pillar of our faith. And as we noted in an earlier presentation, if you remove the central pillar, the whole structure crumbles, and the same goes for Seventh-day Adventism. Now, I did mention yesterday, one of, yesterday that one of the challenges that we are presented as a church uh, in our fracture and in some of the theological divides and challenges that we have is the birth of the Adventist intellectual. Do you remember when I said that yesterday about the Adventist intellectual and the explosion of Adventist universities around the world. Now, I want to add to that that Ellen White states that we should go as high as we can when it comes to education. Amen? I praise the Lord for Adventist education. I praise the Lord for my seminary education and for my graduate studies. Now, Education is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways, and much of what I presented this week has been as a result of some of the brightest and finest of Adventist scholarship. And one of the tasks that has been given to me is to take these brilliant uh, scholars and to take them in a package that is understandable and uh, um, can be followed by the masses. Now, what I mean by cuts two ways is that education is never a replacement for conversion. Amen? Education is never a replacement for the Holy Spirit. Now, ideally speaking, we can have the Holy Spirit and education, and you have the example of Paul, who was a, wrote the majority of the New Testament and made significant contributions theologically. But education... Without the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, he says that knowledge puffeth up. And there's a challenge that we face as a people that the more highly we become educated, there can be a temptation, can be a temptation to depend on our education rather than the Holy Spirit. And this is the challenge that we face as a church as more and more of our people are seeking terminal degrees. Now, I owe these next four or five slides and the latter part of my presentation this morning to one of my major professors, uh, Dr. Richard Davison, who's done tremendous work on the sanctuary. And so I want to give credit where credit is due and encourage you to read his work. Um, now, Richard Davison states that it seems like in every era, or every 40 years, there is an attack on the sanctuary message. If you look on the screen, there's a slide that lists the first era that came up immediately in the 1960s. On the left-hand side, you see the detractors, B.F. Snook, W.H. Brinkerhoff, were the individuals that doubted that Jesus went into his final phase of ministry in 1844, and doubted the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And the defenders were James White, Uriah Smith, and J.N. Andrews. So this was the first time that the sanctuary came under attack. 
And according to Dr. Richard Davidson, this was the second time at the turn of the 20th century. The detractors were Dundee Canwright, J.H. Kellogg, and A.F. Ballinger. Remember, uh, J.H. Kellogg uh, wrote The Living Temple, which had pantheistic beliefs, which stated that God was in everything, in the plants and objects, and that we were all the temple. He had a very eminent view of God, and so the sanctuary idea was, was really muddled because not um, the idea that God is ministering in, in heaven or the idea of the Shekinah glory be, abiding in a place did not coincide well with the idea of pantheism or panentheism. The other name I had on the screen was Dudley Canwright. He was a prominent preacher um, that went into apostasy, and many of Canwright's writings today are used by ex-Adventists to uh, undermine our beliefs. Uh, the defenders were S.N. Haskell, F.C. Gilbert, and E.E. E. Andros. Um, the other time that the sanctuary came under attack was the 1930s, and the detractors were L.R. Conradi and W.W. W. Fletcher, and the defender in this case was M.L. Andreessen, who wrote the book, The Sanctuary Service. Um, now, I want to spend a little bit more time on the 1980s. Um, this was a significant time. The most prominent name up there is Desmond Ford. Um, you had others, Robert Brimsmead, Dale Ratzlab, and Raymond Cottrell. Uh, the defenders, in response specifically to Desmond Ford, was DARCOM, which is an acronym or, uh, for uh, the Daniel Revelation Study Committee, which was a response to Desmond Ford in specific, uh, specifically. Now, Desmond Ford uh, was professor of theology at Avondale, and then uh, as a result of some of his teachings, uh, he was transferred from Avondale College to um, Pacific Union College because the brethren were having some challenges with his teachings at Avondale. And they assumed that bringing Desmond Ford from Avondale to Pacific Union College would make him uh, a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond, if you understand me, and the brethren would be able to work with him and um, just deal with some of these challenges they were having. Uh, one of my professors that I had in undergrad was a colleague of Desmond Ford at Avondale, and he stated that what the brethren did not understand was that bringing Desmond Ford from Avondale to Pacific Union College was making a big fish in a big pond. My professor stated that Desmond Ford had the closest thing to what you would call a photographic memory. If you remember my earlier statement, uh, they didn't have CD-ROM back then, and when they would try to come up with a, or find an Ellen White quote, rather than going to the Ellen White index, they would go to Desmond Ford, and he would be able to picture the page of the spirit of prophecy in his mind and quote you the passage almost verbatim. He was brilliant. He passed away this year, incidentally. And Desmond Ford gave a sermon on the campus of Pacific Union College that troubled the brethren, and they gathered together at Glacier View, and in three days, I believe it was, he produced a document that was over 900 pages long. 
brilliant man, and his argument in the 900 pages, according to Richard Davidson, were so compelling that my professor, Dr. Davidson, said that he almost left the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a result of Richard, da uh, of, um, Richard Davidson left the church as a result of Dr. Desmond Ford's arguments. Those 900 pages and the arguments that Desmond Ford gave, Adventism had never had to grapple with before. There were whole churches that left the denomination as a result. About one-third of the Adventist ministers in Australia turned in their credentials and walked out the door, and Desmond Ford, after Glacier View, um, he had his credentials taken away, and he left the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The fallout of what took place in 1979 and 1980, um, I don't know if we will fully grasp the magnitude of what took place then until eternity. Now, there is a silver lining in this. Ellen White states that sometimes the Lord allows heresies to come into the church so that our people will be forced to go back to the Bible. You know, you can do nothing against the truth. You study the truth, um, it, it will only affirm you more. And the Daniel Revelation Study Committee that in the decade after the Ford fallout went back to revisit and look at the arguments that Desmond Ford made in regards to the legitimacy of the heavenly sanctuary. Is our belief that Jesus in 1844 transferred his work from the holy place to the most holy place a biblical idea, or is it, as Desmond Ford said, grounded and founded upon heavenly geography and has no biblical merit? What the Daniel Revelation Study Committee found in their study is that our belief as Seventh-day Adventists in the investigative judgment is rock solid. And we came out on the other side of the Ford crisis more grounded and rooted than ever before. So I want to share with you just a brief synopsis of some of the findings of the Daniel Revelation Study Committee. Um, I credit... Uh, Clifford Goldstein for making their study uh, more comprehensible to the average layperson. And I want to go very quickly through this, and I also want to credit uh, my professor Richard Davison for his work, especially as we get into uh, the question about Christ entering within the veil. Now, when we come to this idea of the heavenly sanctuary, this is one argument uh, I have on the screen that I want to read to you uh, that was put forth by the detractors, Brimsmead, specifically Desmond Ford, in regards to this idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary, and it went something like this. The detractors argued that as soon as sin is committed, the immediate defilement of the sanctuary from the commission of sin, and as soon as sin is forgiven, the sanctuary is cleansed. Now, let me unpack this for you. This is an evangelical concept that was adopted by Desmond Ford, who was trained at an evangelical university. The evangelicals and Desmond Ford believe that when we sin, that record is in heaven, in the sanctuary, uh, whatever it is they believe about that. But the, the sanctuary, the temple, the records have this, this record of our sins in heaven. And then when we ask forgiveness... 
that record is immediately erased. That is a common evangelical notion, and uh, needless to say, it is even an Adventist notion in some circles. Um, you, you almost unconsciously believe that you ask for forgiveness, and metaphorically speaking, God gets out his, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but you understand me, he gets out his eraser, you following me, and then scrubs that record clean. That is a common idea of, of forgiveness. The records are defiled with our sins, and then when we ask for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9, it is erased. So this idea that in 1844, God opened the books, right, and began this process of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is incompatible with the evangelical mind. Are you understanding me? Because, look, what is there to cleanse if every time the individual asks for forgiveness, it's gone? So the notion of the cleansing of the sanctuary especially in the 1950s when the whole book Questions on Doctrine came about, Walter Martin uh, and the editor of Eternity magazine, Donald Barnhouse, uh, this was a real issue they had with our cleansing of the sanctuary because for the evangelical mind, that's heresy. Um, what about assurance? How can you have assurance if some sort of record is still there, and you're waiting for this cleansing process to take place since 1844. So for the evangelical and Desmond Ford, who became an evangelical, this idea of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary was incompatible with the gospel. Now, how do we deal with this? I want to go to the daily service in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 32 through 35, and look at the way that the sanctuary was defiled and the way that the sanctuary was cleansed. Here it is in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they killed the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all of it all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. I want to read one more reference here. I think I have it. Uh, no, I don't. I thought I had it, but we'll just go with this one. There's another place in the Bible where it says that the blood is taken and sprinkled before the veil, but I must have hidden that slide. You're familiar with it in the book of Leviticus. So here is the concept. I have a picture of the lamb on the screen. Um, you're familiar with the sanctuary service. The person comes in, the sinner and then he confesses over the lamb his sins. And then, with his own hand, he slits the throat, and then the priest catches the blood. Then the priest takes the blood and does one of several things, which all indicates the same thing. He takes uh, uh, some of that blood and then places on the horns of the burnt offering, altar, the horns, or he takes it into the holy place and places it on the horns of the altar of incense, or he sprinkles it on the veil. Now, I want you to follow what's taking place here. Uh, the sanctuary is predicated on this notion and this idea that sin is transferable. Very essential. Sin can be transferred. If sin, can be, if sin cannot be transferred, Jesus cannot be our Savior. Are you following me? Okay, so the whole plan of salvation is predicated on this notion 
of the transference of sin. Now, notice what happens in the sanctuary service. The sin is transferred from the person, follow me, to the lamb, but it doesn't end there. To the blood, and the priest is the one that ministers the blood. This is an important point. You need the priest and the lamb. Okay? Both are essential. Now, we're not minimizing one or the other. Both are essential. You need the priest and the lamb. If the priest isn't there, forgiveness still does not take place. So, the sinner transfers the sin from the person to the animal to the blood. Follow it. And then the priest takes it and transfers it to the sanctuary. This is an important idea for us to follow. In the sanctuary service, it was not as though abracadabra, sin just vanishes away. Sin is transferred from the person to the animal, to the blood, and by the priest to the sanctuary. Now, in the annual calendar of the Israelite year, you can imagine a million men, not counting women and children, over the course of the annual calendar, that sanctuary was becoming literally polluted. Okay? With the stains of the slain animals that came into that sanctuary. That curtain, those horns, must have been caked in blood. Now, I want you to notice the significance of this. Were those Israelites forgiven? Absolutely. They were forgiven. They could walk away from that sacrifice and the priest transferring it with the assurance of salvation and with the knowledge that they had been forgiven because the lamb has died and the priest has transferred it to the sanctuary. But I want you to notice the way that it was recorded. The way that it was recorded was with the blood on the horns or in the sanctuary. In other words, that forgiveness was recorded in a way that the sinner would ever recognize that forgiveness costs something. Blood. It costs the life of the animal which represented Jesus Christ. Now, let's transfer this to what takes place in heaven. When, when we sin, okay, that sin is recorded in heaven. When I ask for forgiveness, a more accurate analogy of what happens in heaven with that record is not the analogy of the evangelical mind where God gets out his eraser and... <laughs> the more accurate analogy is when I ask for forgiveness, let's say that uh, I lost my temper and, um, you know, just spoke very harshly, um, and, and it's recorded, and before I go to bed at night, I say, Lord, I, I shouldn't have talked to that person that way. Um, please forgive me. And forgiveness is instantaneous, amen? That's one prayer that's always a yes prayer. Okay, so 
So metaphorically speaking, analogously speaking, uh, that would be more accurate with the sanctuary, is that when I ask for forgiveness, the more accurate representation of what takes place in heaven is that sin is covered by the blood. Are you following me? You might say that's a minor nuance, but that's an important nuance. Okay? It's not as though abracadabra, it's erased. It's covered by the blood. In other words, if, if my books were to be opened in heaven and every sin was cleansed, you would see it stained in blood. Covered by the blood, indicating that yes, David is forgiven, but it cost heaven everything. It cost the life of God, covered by the blood. That's a more accurate metaphor of what takes place in forgiveness. In regards, you know, from a biblical perspective, especially from, from the standpoint of the sanctuary. Now, this becomes significant when it comes to this notion and this idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary. All right, what happens, or what is actually taking place since 1844? Um, we come to our yearly service, and in the Jewish calendar in the fall, the, uh, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16, it's about the Day of Atonement. Um, they had uh, Yom Kippur, um, and the time when the sanctuary was cleansed. So, in the, in the annual year, the, the sins of the people were being transferred to the sanctuary, the record, and then once a year, they had the Day of Atonement in which the sanctuary was cleansed. In other words, the record of forgiven sins were forever removed from the sanctuary. Let's read about it here in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 19. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and notice the operative word here, and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Notice the operative word here is cleansing. In other words, the, the annual calendar of the Jews was a miniature of the salvation timeline. Passover, Jesus died, and then Day of Atonement it also points to the antitypical Day of Atonement and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. But, but there was a time every year when the record of forgiven sins were removed from the sanctuary. Now, the question is, like, why, why do we have to do this? Um, now, there are several reasons. Uh, one of them is, let's say I accept Jesus as my Savior at 25 my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then at the age of 70, I decide I want to renege on my original decision. I want to walk away from it. Well, when you look at the sanctuary, the sanctuary was not constructed like a, a mousetrap. You following me? Or one of those traps for insects. You get in and, and you can't get out. You can always walk out. You can always choose to walk away from Jesus. So, so when, when you come into the sanctuary, you can always walk out. So when God opens the books and He sees that in 2000, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but then years later, I renege on that decision, God always respects 
your power of choice. And so that's one reason for this process. We don't believe in once saved, always saved. God always gives us the freedom of choice. And so from the evangelical paradigm, because they believe in once saved, always saved, and, and the courtyard experience alone, this idea of free will and this idea that you can walk away from your salvation is a challenge. So God looks at the whole life and He respects your power of choice, seeing whether your last decision and your final wish is congruent with your original decision to accept Jesus as your Savior. That's one reason. There's a host of other reasons, and um, I want to very quickly um, go through a few texts about the legitimacy of the heavenly sanctuary, um, because some people have said that uh, the heavenly sanctuary doesn't exist, and this idea of the earthly sanctuary being a model of the heavenly one. I want to read through these texts very quickly um, for your reference. You're familiar with all of them. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So the sanctuary was made after a pattern. It was a replica of the original. We quoted this earlier, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Very clear in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Three texts from the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. John sees the menorah in heaven, and this is the last book of the Bible. Another text, he, uh, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So here, John sees the altar of incense. And last but not least, this is one of the clearest passages for those that don't believe in a heavenly sanctuary. The temple of God was opened in where? In heaven. Very clear passage, friends. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen in His temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So, clear passages indicating that the validity of the heavenly sanctuary is grounded upon a biblical solid foundation. Now, another argument that is put forth by the evangelicals on the screen I have is evangelical detractors argue that the judgment ended at the cross. The idea that there is a pre-advent judgment post-cross is anathema to the evangelical mind because they believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that is when judgment took place. The courtyard is central to evangelical theology. When you look at the sanctuary, it has three distinct compartments, um, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place, and for the most part, when I studied systematic theology and historical theology in my graduate studies, when you look at the theology of Luther and Calvin, it is what you would call a systematic theology that is centered in the courtyard. To the neglect or the outright rejection of the holy place experience. So, it's centered around 
the courtyard experience. Now, if you want a comparison, Catholic theology is primarily centered in the holy place theology to the neglect or negation of the courtyard. Uh, meritorious sanctification. Um, sanctification or works through the seven sacraments. And, and that is central to, to Catholic theology. Now, the unique contribution of Methodism and John Wesley was that he said we need both the courtyard and the holy place. He brought them together. John Wesley made a significant contribution, and it's interesting that Ellen White came out of a Methodist background with that beautiful blend of justification and sanctification. We need both. And the wonderful contribution of Seventh-day Adventists is we brought together the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. That's the beautiful contribution of Seventh-day Adventists. Now, this idea of the judgment ending at the cross, does it have any biblical validity? And I want to quote a few texts here for you. There's three. Um, you can jot it for your reference. And these are very clear that the apostles believed in a post-8031, a post-cross judgment. Here it is in Acts chapter 24, verse 25. And he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Is that past, present, or future tense? Future tense. Notice this is in the book of Acts. This is at a time when they're preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says very clearly, there is a judgment to come. He didn't say the judgment has come, already happened at the cross. He said there is a judgment to come. So in the mind of the Apostle Paul, he believed in a post AD 31, a post-cross judgment. Let's move quickly to our, our next text here, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Is that past, present, or future? That's future tense. Paul is reasoning again, and he says, look, there is a day in which he will judge the world. There is a post-8031 judgment. Last but not least, uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, in the day when Christ or God shall judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There it is again, this idea of a future judgment in the book of Acts. Now, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I didn't put it on the screen because I want you to read this in your own Bible. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 gives a judgment scene that takes place in heaven. Um, actually, go back to verse 8. This is the little horn power. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, when you look at Daniel chapter 7, uh, I want you to look at this on the screen. Um, this is just a five-minute explanation of Daniel 7. Uh, the book of Daniel is built on the principle of repeat and enlarge, Daniel chapter 2. And then Daniel chapter 7 repeats the same theme, but enlarges upon it. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, you have the lion, the bear, the leopard, the beast, the ten horns, and the little horn, which we've just read about in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. 
the little horn power went from 538, and when did the little horn power, the 1260 years, expire? You can talk to me. Okay, 1798. 1798. So, if you look on the screen, Daniel chapter 7 is what we would call in chronological order. The bear follows the lion, the leopard follows the bear, the beast follows the leopard, the ten horns follow the beast, the little horn follows the ten horns. So, it's only logical and reasonable to conclude that the judgment seen in Daniel chapter 7 follows the little horn, and the little horn was from 538 to 1798. Are you following me? So let's read about that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. The Bible says that sometime after 1798, this is going to happen in heaven. Daniel 7, 9, I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was, what's his posture? He was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Now, I want you to notice something unique about this judgment scene that takes place in heaven sometime after 1798. God is sitting on his throne, but his throne has, has wheels. Now, if something has wheels, that also implies that this is not a stationary throne. It is a movable throne. So, God is sitting on his throne. In verse 10, the Bible indicates, a fiery stream issued and came forth before him, a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, the court was seated, and the books were what? And the books were open. So here we have a scene in heaven. It's an open judgment. God is sitting on his throne, on his movable throne, and God has his books, and it's open before the universe. It's not like a sealed FBI document that only the senators are allowed to see in some concealed room. It's before the entire universe. In other words, the beneficiaries of the investigative judgment of the pre-advent judgment, who are the beneficiaries? The universe. When do we get to benefit from the open judgment? The millennium. That's when we get to go through the books. You see, the beneficiaries in the judgment is the universe. The reason why God is opening the books and we have this process of investigation is God wants transparency. You know, in the, in the great controversy, God has made, been made out to be a tyrant and hiding things. That was the accusations of Satan. And so, before God takes people home, He does a very transparent process, opening the books, indicating how and why he has made his decision. That, that's, that's, that's one primary reason for this process of the investigative judgment. Now, we have nothing to fear through this process, amen? Just make sure your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. You have nothing to fear. And it's free, by the way, okay? Make sure that all of your sins make it into the sanctuary and that your sins are confessed, and you have nothing to be scared about and be fearful about, because not only is Jesus your defense attorney, he's your judge. You'll never lose a case like that. And when God opens the books, 
and he says David's name is covered by the merits of the blood of Jesus, case closed. And the entire universe says, Amen. 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 Okay? So, we have nothing to fear in this process, but you see that the beneficiaries are the entire universe. So that when God closes the books throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, there will be no lingering questions as to, you know, when I'm walking on the streets of gold, I don't want some intelligent being coming up to me and say, look, um, I don't know why you made it here. I didn't get to see it. I didn't get to see the books open. I don't believe that that will happen, but are you following me? Every question will be decided. And notice that God gives us 1,000 years to, to go through every case and uh, in this process. Now, um, very quickly here, for the sake of time, I want to just, just touch on this notion of uh, Daniel chapter 8, because in Daniel chapter 8, you have the ram, the he-goat, and the horn. Um, by the way, these uh, entities are found in Leviticus chapter 16. Um, this is sanctuary language. The same animals that are carnivores, uh, entities that are carnivores in Daniel 7, are now sanctuary uh, entities in Daniel chapter 8. That's because the theme has changed in Daniel chapter 8. You have the ram, the he-goat, and then you have after the papacy, 1798, you have Daniel 8.14 and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. So you can logically conclude and deduce just from a cursory, cursory um, 10,000 view uh, look at Daniel that the judgment in Daniel 7 is the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel chapter 8. Now, I want to move very quickly to this uh, very compelling argument made by Desmond Ford and Ballinger, and this was the argument that they made. They argued that Jesus went directly within the veil into the most holy place in AD 31. Now, this idea is, is problematic for Seventh-day Adventists. And, and the reason is quite obvious. If Jesus, upon his ascension, went directly into the most holy place, what does it do to 1844? It destroys it. Okay? If Jesus, in AD 31, goes to heaven and goes directly within the veil to the most holy place ministry, 1844 is destroyed. And the two problem texts that were presented by Desmond Ford and Ballinger was Hebrews 6:19 through 20 and Hebrews 10:19 through 21. And again, I want to give credit where credit is due, uh, because what I'm going to share with you from here on out to the end is uh, because of Richard Davidson and his tremendous contribution to our church in his study of Within the Veil, and if you ever get on the Adventist Theological Society and read his articles, just profound, um, can elaborate a lot more and a lot more deeply and articulate than I ever can. But I just want to present to you um, Richard Davison's study on this. Now, let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. I have it here on the screen, and this, this has been an issue for Seventh-day Adventists, especially because of Desmond Ford. Let's read it here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 through 20 which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which is entered and which entered into within the veil, whither the forerunner 
is for us. I can't read this morning. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there have been many attempts to explain that within the veil here uh, refers to um, the first veil into the holy place, um, but this text refers to the veil that goes into the most holy place. That's a significant problem for Seventh-day Adventists. Because what Paul is saying here, when you look at the context, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he went directly within the veil. And that veil, in the context, and when you do exegesis of the book of Hebrews, is into the most holy place. Now, this is a slide um, from Richard Davison in which he elaborates and shows us that the book of Hebrews, uh, specifically chapter 6 and 10, are in what we call a chiastic structure. It's a form of Hebrew literature and poetry, and the height of the chiasm is the sanctuary motif in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And the reason that I want to show you that is um, really when you look at the chiastic structure, what we just read in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, the parallel of that is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. The parallel to Hebrews chapter 6, 19 is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says essentially the same thing except gives more Old Testament background. And let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 20 here. It uses the motif, the idea within the veil. Now, let's read this here. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, now, some translations say the holiest of all, tahagiyah, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated, the original word is inkaizo, it's been a while since Greek, for us, through the veil that is his flesh. So here is the parallel to 619, except here it gives more background, and it says the same thing, that Jesus, when he went into heaven, he went within the veil, went into the most holy place. Now, this is a problem for us as Seventh-day Adventists because we believe that Jesus, upon his ascension, went into the holy place ministry and then in 1844 transferred and went within the veil in 1844. Now, how do we deal with this? Now, let's go back to the screen here very quickly because that word, consecrated, shows us why Jesus went within the veil. And it's the word inkaizo. And the word inkaizo is only found in Numbers chapter 7, verse 10, 11, 84, and 88 in the LXX, which is the, the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament from Hebrew and Aramaic to Greek, which was the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, and the Septuagint was around and widely used during the time of Christ. When Jesus was walking this earth, the Septuagint, 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament was commonly used, and even in Pauline's epistles, he quotes from the Septuagint, arguably more from the Hebrew Bible. So, just, you know, because the fact that the apostles used it shows us that it is a legitimate translation of the Holy Scriptures, and it's widely accepted today as a reliable source. The significance of the Septuagint is that the New Testament was written in Greek. And what you can do is do a word study comparing the Greek use of a certain word in the New Testament with the Septuagint, which was widely used during the time of Christ, and see if the other time that that word was used. Now, go back to the screen here. It says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 20, which is a parallel of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, that Jesus consecrated for us in Caizo and went through the veil. Now, that word consecrated in Caizo in the Septuagint is only used in one chapter of the entire Old Testament of the Septuagint. This is significant. Because that chapter is Numbers chapter 7. Now, this is a significant discovery for Seventh-day Adventists because after I did this study, I came away saying, look, we are not insane people. I came away with the understanding that we're in the right church, friends. Biblical scholarship, the best and brilliant biblical Adventist scholarship has shown us this. Now, let's go back to the screen here. Um, Numbers chapter 7. Now, when you read Numbers chapter 7, Numbers chapter 7 is all about the inauguration of the temple. What does that mean? In other words, when you have a building for the first time, you just built it, you have a dedication of that building. When you build a new church, you have conference officials come down, and what do you do? You cut the ribbon, right, many times, and you have a special dedication of that sanctuary. Well, guess what? When Jesus went to heaven, he was anointed, made the transition from the lamb to the high priest, and he was anointed, and the heavenly sanctuary was dedicated. It was inaugurated. And when you look at the Old Testament, there were actually two times that the high priest would ever go within the veil to the most holy place. One time was on the Day of Atonement, and the other time was at the very beginning at the dedication and the consecration of the sanctuary. Those two times. Numbers chapter 7 describes the inauguration of Moses' tabernacle. That event also involved the anointing of Aaron as high priest, and they went through a special ceremony where Moses, prior to the inauguration of, of Aaron, acting as high priest, went into the most holy place, went into and within the veil. Now, let's read about it here and mention the other times that in Kaizo, the, the word that's used in the book of Hebrews is, is used as well. This is the only time that Greek word is used. Numbers chapter 7, verse 10, 
Now, the leaders offered the dedication, in kaizo, that word in the Septuagint, you can look it up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There it is. The only time it's mentioned is in Numbers chapter 7. Now, the leaders offered the dedication, in kaizo, offering for the altar when it was anointed, so that the leaders offered the offering before the altar. Numbers chapter 7, verse 11. For the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering one liter each day for the dedication in Kaizo of the altar. Moving on, Numbers chapter 7, verse 84. This was the dedication in Kaizo, offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed, 12 silver platters, silver bowls, and 12 gold pans. So you can see on the dedication of the temple, they would go from article to article, and dedicate each article of furniture prior to the sanctuary service taking place, the inauguration, the institution of the sanctuary service. Let's go to our last quote here, Numbers chapter 7, verse 88, and all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offering were 24 bulls, the rams 60, the male goats 60, and the lambs in the first year 60. This was the dedication in Kaizo, offering for the altar after it was anointed. Moving very quickly here, the most holy place entered on inauguration. In the inauguration of the sanctuary, Moses, acting as his priestly function before the ordaining of Aaron, went into both the holy place and the most holy place in Exodus chapter 40, verse 9 through 10, and Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. So let's put this together. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 10, when Paul says that Christ, upon his ascension, went within the veil, he uses the word consecrated, in kaizo. The only other place that word is used in the Greek Septuagint is Numbers chapter 7, referring specifically to this notion and this idea of the inauguration of the sanctuary. So when Jesus went to heaven and transitioned from the Lamb to the high priest, he was anointed, inaugurated, and the sanctuary in heaven was dedicated and consecrated. And Jesus went within the veil to consecrate in Kaizo, the sanctuary, just like Moses did in Numbers chapter 7. Desmond Ford's argument crumbles. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 21. 20 are parallel. Both refer to the inauguration of the sanctuary upon Christ's ascension. The other problem text that is presented by Ballinger and Ford is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. I want to read it here very quickly. Neither by the blood of goats, tragos, and calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place. Now, some translations say most holy place, tahagiah, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And there's a big discussion, argument in theological circles as to what the holy place should be, tahagiah, but it refers to the whole sanctuary, and it's irrelevant because here Paul uses the Greek word tragos for goats. Now, goats were used in two distinct ceremonies 
They were used other places, but one time they were used was obviously on the Day of Atonement. The other time goats were used was in the dedication. Now, it's peculiar that Paul would use this word. I want to put it on the screen very quickly here. Sorry, guys, in the back. The, he says, neither by the blood of goats, tragos. He uses tragos here, and Paul was familiar with the Septuagint, and he knew that there were two specific words for goats that he could use. But he specifically chose the word tragos, and you'll never guess the only place where tragos is used in the Septuagint. What chapter do you think it is? You're absolutely right. Numbers chapter 7. And Numbers chapter 7 deals specifically with the inauguration of the sanctuary. Here it is. According to Richard Davison, in the LXX of Septuagint, the word tragos for gold only appears in one chapter of the Pentateuch describing sanctuary rituals. Now, this is significant. One chapter in the, uh, in the Pentateuch. Numbers chapter 7, and it is 13 times. 13 times. The setting of Numbers 7 is the inauguration of the sanctuary, and incidentally, Leviticus chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement, uses a different word for goat, chimaros. Chapter 16 is, based, is talking about the Day of Atonement. So, simply from just a, the, a literary study of, of the original language, you can see that Desmond Ford's arguments in regards to these specific verses within the veil and Jesus entering into the most holy place, and therefore entered into the most holy place day of atonement, or ain't a typical day of atonement, is simply unbiblical. It is not established upon biblical exegesis. In reflection, very quickly here, I want to read a couple passages in regards to the inauguration of Adam. The psalmist says in Psalm 133, verse 2, it is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down the edge of his garments. This is in reference to the day that not only was the sanctuary inaugurated, but Aaron was anointed and dedicated. I want you to notice the nature of the anointing. It's not like the anointings that we have today where we take a little dab of oil and put it on the forehead of the individual that we want to anoint. And for practical purposes, we can see why. But you can see that this oil runs down the head, down the beard, so much oil that it runs down the garment and drips by implication to the ground. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, here is a reference to the inauguration of Jesus. But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Who's you? The Son. With the oil of gladness more than your companions. This is a reference to the inauguration of Jesus when He went to heaven and became our high priest. I want to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, talking about the high priest in heaven. Now, very quickly here, Acts, chapter, Acts of the Apostles, page 38 and 39, Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal that His followers were to receive the promised blessing. 
For this they were to wait before they entered upon their work. Listen to this. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, He was enthroned amidst the adoration of angels, and as soon as this ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents, and Christ was indeed glorified even with the glory. I want you to notice what Ellen White is saying in the book Acts of the Apostles. She says that as soon as the ceremony was what? Was completed, that the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles. In other words, there was a synchronization, as it were, between a ceremony in heaven and the falling of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Are you following me? According to Ellen White, in the book Acts of the Apostles, as soon as a certain ceremony was completed, as soon as it ended, the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples in the upper room. So there is a synchronization on this event between heaven and earth. Ceremony completed in heaven and the falling of the Holy Spirit on the disciples in the upper room. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus uh, went to heaven and he, he stayed on this earth about 40 days, according to the book of Acts, 40 days, and then he went to heaven and there were 10 days between his ascension and Pentecost. What was taking place during those 10 days? This ceremony. When the ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit fell. What was that ceremony? Now, I want to read it here, continue, continuing on in this quote. Uh, I just read Acts the Apostles 38 and 39. The rest of this quote is on the next slide. Which he had with the Father from all eternity, the Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's what? Say it again. Inauguration was what? Was accomplished. According to His promise, He had sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to His followers as a token that He had as a priest and king received all authority in heaven and on earth and was, and notice what she says, the anointed one over His people. This is what took place. As soon as the inauguration was completed. Remember Psalm 133? The oil that fell on Aaron went down his head, down his beard, drenched his garments and fell to the ground. In my mind's eye, I picture the inauguration of Jesus Christ as our high priest in heaven and the inauguration of the temple, the inauguration of the sanctuary. And you imagine, remember what she says, this, this was completed, the oil is falling on Jesus. And just picture this, that oil falls down and drips. I love Richard Davidson in my class. He says, and that oil fell from heaven and was lit with fire. Amen. And fell on the disciples. Praise God. Praise His name. And friends, I know we talked a lot of theology this week, 
But Jesus said that they that worship me will worship me in spirit and truth. We need both. We need truth and we need the Holy Spirit. I've known people that are big on truth and little on the Spirit. Mean Adventists. You know what I'm talking about. People that are high on truth but don't love people. I know individuals that are high on the Spirit and little on truth. We need both. Amen? You know that you can be a carnal conservative. You can be a carnal liberal. You can be a carnal moderate. It doesn't matter. Whatever theological framing you may have, the most important thing is if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you love Jesus because Jesus is the truth, amen, God will bring this church together. And God wants a people that will affirm the Holy Spirit which brings with him the presence of Jesus and love and affirms the truth. And this wonderful balance is what will proclaim the everlasting gospel in the end. I want to close with this quotation. This is my prayer for us as a people. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us His blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. You know, so many times I've prayed, Lord, change the world. And God says, it's got to begin with you got to begin with me. I want to invite you to stand with me as we prepare to close this morning. It's the last week of camp meeting, or it's the last day of camp meeting, last weekday of camp meeting. And um, I just want to make a very simple appeal this morning. Every head bowed and eyes closed. Um, If there is something that's keeping you from Jesus and the Holy Spirit's been speaking to your heart and you know exactly what it is, but you've been holding on, you just can't seem to surrender. And today, the Bible says, if you hear His voice, respond, harden not your hearts. I just want to give an opportunity this morning for you to respond. If there's an area of your life, now this is not a general appeal, this is a specific appeal. If there's an area of your life that the Holy Spirit is calling you to make a stand and surrender, and you want to say, I surrender this area of my life, I want to invite you to come forward. I want to have a special word of prayer for you. Don't care what other people think. This is between you and God. But there's an area of your life that God is calling you to surrender this morning. Just slip on down the aisle. 
This is a physical response that indicates a spiritual decision, an area of your life that God is calling you to surrender. God bless you, sister. God bless you, my brother. Come on down, and, and when you come down, you are saying, Lord, help me willing to be made willing. You know what this area in your life is. It's an area in your life that you've struggled with, you've hung on to, and it's keeping you from going to the next level. It's keeping you from a full relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's camp meeting, friends. <laughs> if there's ever a time for revival, it's at camp meeting. Amen. Amen? We're told in the spirit of prophecy that God's spirit is waiting to be poured out in convocations like this, and the Bible says, today if you hear His voice, do not resist the Holy Spirit. This opportunity may not come again. You're not assured of tomorrow. And if you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart this morning, I want to invite you to come on down. God is calling us higher. You're, you've been treading water, but God is calling you to a fuller relationship with Him, to, to the highest relationship with Him, to walk with God as Enoch walked. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning and saying, come. Come and be broken. Come and say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing to be made willing. Give me the desire to desire, and you have been hanging on, and you want to say, Lord, with my clenched hands, <laughs> I'm bringing it to the altar, and saying, Lord, like Jim Elliot, help me to loose my grasp, and he will do it for you. All he's wanting is a willingness to surrender. Even surrender is a gift. Repentance is a gift. And if you want to say, Lord, I love this thing, help me to hate it. I want to surrender this area of my life to you today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this camp meeting. We thank you for this time that you have called us apart to this holy convocation. To, to learn, to reflect on your word. But Lord, you've called us more to an intellectual ascent, but to a heart transformation. Lord, change us. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room that your Holy Spirit would fill us. And I pray a special prayer for those that have come forward this morning. Lord, you know the area of their lives that they are struggling with. I've come forward too. You know the area that we are holding on to our, with our clenched fingers. And Lord, help us to loose our grasp. Help us to be willing to be made willing. Fill us with the Holy Spirit, recognizing that there is nothing more helpless, yet more invincible than the soul that feels his nothingness and leans upon the infinite arm. Lord, 
I pray that you bless every individual that's come forward this morning. May you empower them by the Spirit of Christ. May you fill them right now with the Holy Spirit that in the very act of coming forward, that has been their consent. That has been their authorization for heaven to move and for the Holy Spirit to fill each individual that's come forward to empower them and to grant them the victory and that they can walk away from this experience this morning believing based on the Word of God and not the way that we may or may not feel, but based on your Word that you have granted us the victory in Jesus Christ. We praise you for these things. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.